you will join me in Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, we continue in our series through the gospel of Luke. This morning we will be looking at Luke 22 verse 63 and we will go through chapter 23 and verse 25, a large section this morning. The title of our sermon is Gabbatha and our key words are trial, king, and Pilate. Now we come this morning in the scriptures to look at what must be understood as the greatest injustice in the history of the world. Of all of the trials, of all of the false accusations, of all of the false imprisonments, of all of the injustice that has ever happened in the world, this stands head and shoulders above them all. The sinless Son of God was tried and convicted of blasphemy and treason. Now, most likely we're all quite familiar with the events that take place on this darkest day in the history of mankind. But it is so important that we continue to remember and reflect on exactly what happened because it's our story It's the story of what it took to make a way for our sin to be forgiven. It's the story of what was necessary that you and I could be called sons and daughters of God because our sin is so great in the presence of our God who is holy, holy, holy. As I've thought through this passage, I'm reminded of the words of a song that we sing. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If you're a Christian, I think you will too soon think these things as we think through this text. Amazing love. And so little on our part to be able to give, even if we owned it all. It demands all of me. So let's read, beginning in verse 63 of Luke chapter 22. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Well, at this point in... The narrative, we have seen quite a few events unravel over a few hours in Jesus' life. From the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was betrayed by Judas, 
he was seized and brought into the house of the high priest. They tied him up and they led him away to the house of Annas, who's the former high priest. Remember, Annas actually held the power among the Jews, but his son-in-law, Caiaphas, is the current high priest. But in bringing Jesus before Annas, they were attempting to find some kind of crime that they could accuse him of. Something they could decide he was guilty of so that they could put him through a trial and have a legitimate reason to crucify him. Now remember, according to Jewish law, they could only hold an official trial during the daylight hours. So up until this point, all of this has been a kangaroo court because Jesus had to be dealt with. He must be eliminated. And it was during this time also that all of the disciples left and Peter denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. The night grew darker and darker as all of the forces of evil arrayed against our Savior. Now Luke doesn't record what happened to Jesus when he stood before Annas in the darkness of night during this kangaroo trial. But Matthew and Mark do give us some insight into that. In Mark 14, beginning in verse 53, we read this. They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. So here in verses 63 through 65, Luke gives us the tail end of what Mark recorded. What happened after these false accusations were made and they had already declared in their minds that Jesus was a blasphemer. They mocked Jesus. They blindfolded Jesus. They hit him repeatedly and they kept on asking, well, who was that? Who just hit you? You should know this. You're a prophet. Tell us who did it. Can you even begin to feel what it is like to be blindfolded, to be punched, to lose track of time? You wonder where your next bout of intense pain is coming from. It's so easy for us to read through this, through these events, and to be so familiar with them that they lose their sting. But the cruelty that's on display here is horrific. Luke simply says they said many other things against him. 
But you can just imagine the vile, filthy insults that flowed out of their mouths. And it's quite intentional that given this charge against Jesus, that Luke says that they were saying these things that were blasphemy. Verse 65, they were blaspheming him. It's so backwards. Up is down and black is white. There was no justice. And as we read this, I I don't know how as Christians we can do this without feeling the weight and the pain and the heartbreak. Every blow that Jesus received was for us. Every word he endured was because of my sin. And so at the end, at the giving end of each blow and each word isn't just some ruthless guard. It's me. It's you. It's my sin and it is your sin smiting our Savior again and again and again. Well, Luke continues on in verse 66. And he fast forwards a bit to daytime. Jesus is led to stand before the assembly of the elders. And this is a trial before the high priest Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. It's a council of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And since it's now daylight, this will be the official trial. Everything beforehand was just preparation, but this is the real deal in the Jewish law system. They worked all night to decide how they could charge Jesus with something that would stick against him, that he has committed blasphemy, making himself to be the Son of God. The priests and the elders and the teachers, they thought they were big shots, the powerful ones in the room. And as they gather together to cross-examine the son of a carpenter from a, from a two-bit backwards town, they make up a terrifying group of men. Here is the very highest court among the Jews meeting to interrogate and intimidate Jesus of Nazareth. So in verse 67, they put the question to him directly. If he thinks he is the Christ the Messiah, God's anointed king. They want him to say so. They've already made up their minds about the answer, but they're just hoping that he will incriminate himself. They want to condemn him quickly. They're not searching carefully for the truth. And Jesus knows as much, and he calls them out for speaking out of both sides of their mouths. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe me. It's a courtroom which places a very low value on truth. But even so, as Jesus stands before this religious court, looking to all the world like he's a helpless victim, he points past this moment in time in verse 69 to the day when things in this world will be quite different. He said, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He condemns himself. He does it to challenge their understanding. He does it to challenge our understanding of what is going on. Jesus is saying that he is the all-powerful king who receives authority from the eternal God, the ancient of days, the, the ruler of all the universe. 
He might be suffering as he stands before his accusers, but he will one day return in power and majesty. He might now be judged, but there will be a day when he stands as judge over all. This is not just a suffering man. This is the ruling son of man. But tragically, his accusers don't pause to consider the implication of what he's saying. That one day, the one they are about to murder is the one who will decide their eternal fate. Uh, They're looking for self-incrimination. And here they have it spectacularly. If there were any doubts at all of, of Jesus in their minds blaspheming, they, they found their answer right here. And so in verse 70, they all say, Are you the Son of God then? And he says to them, You say that I am. Other versions translated as, You are right in saying that I am. And there it is. They had what they wanted. And we see the response in verse 71. They said, What future testimony do we need? We've heard it from our own lips. And you can imagine the scuffle, the the outrage. You can just picture one of the Levites rising up and running out to the people who were outside waiting. The high priest has torn his robe. This man has just said that he is the son of God. The elders are all tearing their garments and shouting, crucify him. It's a horrific scene. And yet all the while, Jesus is demonstrating incredible mastery at this religious trial before the Sanhedrin. He may be bound, he may be beaten, but he's in complete control. He essentially said to them, if you're going to kill me, you're going to have to kill me for who I am, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. Jesus has been toying with them. The Sanhedrin with the the company of Satan, they thought they had all that they wanted. But only a foolish man cannot see that Jesus had exactly what he wanted. Jesus proclaimed to the world that he was the Messiah, the long-awaited descendant of David who would sit on this throne. He was a suffering, atoning Messiah. After his death and resurrection, he said, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into glory? He died as a Messiah king with the declaration, Jesus of Nazareth King of the Jews inscribed above his head in three different languages so that all the world would know that he was the Messiah. His kingdom rule flows from the cross. And the same person who went into heaven will return on the cloud to judge the world. We must never forget that on this day before he died, Jesus declared that he is the son of man. He saw himself riding on the clouds to the ancient of days and receiving everlasting dominion to sit at his right hand and to rule and reign forever as the divine omnipotent king. It was the son of man who was judged to be a criminal that early dawn, but it is the son of man who will come to judge and the judges of that morning as well, and the whole world will stand in his courtroom. 
And it's this fact that makes the next scene all the more ludicrous. Look at, look at verse 1 in chapter 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. The Sanhedrin and the guards, along with many of the people from the city, follow along, now bringing Jesus to this place called Gabbatha. This is an elevated place in Pontius Pilate's palace. In Greek, it's called the pavement. It was a tribunal area, and the ground would have fallen rapidly on each side. So it's high and lifted up, and there's a long staircase that rapidly descends down the front, and the people would stand down below to look up. Now, Pontius Pilate was a Roman prefect. His job was to rule over the region of Judea for the Roman emperor. And as long as he collected the taxes and prevented uprisings, the authorities of the Romans didn't, didn't care what he did to the people in Israel. And by all accounts, Pilate was a ruthless ruler. History tells us that he was known in his day for executing criminals without a trial, for stealing money from the Jewish temple. He intentionally offended the people of Jerusalem by putting up statues of the Roman emperor, Caesar. But the Sanhedrin had condemned Jesus to death. And they weren't allowed to execute prisoners. Rome had long since revoked their right to inflict capital punishment. So they had to come before Pilate to convince him to do the execution. And it's here at Gabbatha that we see Jesus now being moved from scene to scene. And while Jesus was in divine control, he felt every bit of isolation and desolation in his humanity. It must be utterly unimaginable. At this point, he'd been beaten severely. He'd been spit on. He'd been ruthlessly mocked and stripped down and humiliated to near nakedness. And here he now stands before the Roman governor of Judea while all of the people, all of the people he grew up with, all of the people that he had healed, all of the people he came to set free, they all stood below looking up to him with blood in their eyes. Now notice when they stand before Pilate, they use legal language now. Obviously, the pagan king would not care about a charge of blasphemy. So they use another accusation against Jesus. Two things. First, they say he's guilty of sedition and treason. And secondly, they say he's claiming to be a king. So they're saying that Jesus is inciting the people against Caesar by telling them not to pay their taxes and is calling himself a king, seeking to overthrow the government and set himself up as the new king. Well, we know right away that these things they're claiming about Jesus are not true. 
This idea that he was calling on them to not pay their taxes is patently false. Remember when they asked Jesus about paying taxes? He said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Contrary to what they're accusing him of, he really actually did the opposite. He made very clear, it seems as though it were a no-brainer to him. Yes, it belongs to Caesar. It has his image on it, so give it to Caesar. Their claims are false, and yet they think they know that this will play right into Pilate's condemnation of Jesus. As to all the other accusations, Jesus never claimed that he was going to overthrow the Roman kingdom and set himself up on that land. He claimed that the kingdom of God was at hand. He wasn't concerned about Jerusalem or Judea or the Roman territories. Jesus is concerned about all of creation. He is the king and always has been the king and will forever be the king. So it wasn't that Jesus was inciting a revolution against these earthly authorities. He was merely identifying the authority that was already his. And so Pilate asked Jesus almost mockingly, You? You are king of the Jews? Jesus is standing there. He's been bound up. He's been blindfolded. He's been beaten. He's been sleep-deprived. He's been spit upon. He's dripping in blood. At this point, he doesn't look particularly regal. And so Pilate seems a bit amused by the claim, you're the king? But the religious leaders assume that this was enough, that Pilate would condemn him to death. But Pilate sees through it all and he says, I find him not guilty. Now this is one of six different times in this chapter when Jesus is called not guilty. He's innocent. And normally that would have been enough. Case closed. Pilate has spoken. The people did not give up. The Jews did not back down. They were out for blood. They would not settle for less. So they seek to show Pilate just how pervasive his teaching is. He stirs up the people, teaching all throughout Judea, from Galilee even to this place. They thought he would feel threatened. But Pilate knows in this moment that he's not going to get away with simply letting Jesus go. He might, if he did that, have an unruly mob on his hands, and the emperor might get word that he's not properly controlling his region. So what is he going to do? Let's read in verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with one another. So Pilate sees this as his out. Jesus is a Galilean, and that was not his region. Therefore, Herod can conduct the trial. 
Send him to Herod, since Jesus was a Galilean. And it just so happens that Herod is in town. He's in Jerusalem. There must have been an evil dictator convention or something in Jerusalem. Now, this is, this is Herod Antipas, the king of Galilee. This is just north of Jerusalem. He was a puppet ruler. He exercised authority only with Rome's blessing. And like Pontius Pilate, Antipas was not a good man. At one point, he, he marries his brother's wife and threw the prophet John the Baptist in jail for objecting to this marriage. And then at his birthday party, sometime later, remember, Herod gets drunk. He lusts over his niece, who at this point is now his stepdaughter, who's dancing seductively for him, and he has John beheaded at the mother's request. Probably not the guy you're going to have come over and watch a World Cup match with you. Now, Herod was intrigued by Jesus. He had heard much about him, and in fact, at one point, he mentions that he thought perhaps Jesus was John the Baptist, raised from the dead, full of miraculous power. Luke writes, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. But Herod is a king, a king like a man who might be sitting in here this morning who will hear of the word of Jesus, who will hear of the truth of Jesus, who will see the work of Jesus, and yet who will be utterly unmoved by it. The preaching of the word of God is like water on a duck's back to him, maybe to you. You see, Herod knew Jesus' power. He wanted to see it for himself, but he had a conscience that was at peace enough in his disdain for God that he was able to make fun of Jesus to mock him? Is that you? Do you have a conscience that is at ease with mocking Jesus and his people? If so, your name is Herod. Here's a man who encourages his soldiers to mock and deride the Lord Jesus, and he joins in. And then they array him in splendid clothing, mocking him about being a king He's bloody, he's marred, he's nearly naked, he's sweating, he's in horrific pain already, so they make fun of him. He's no king. You know, this should break our hearts that the Lord Jesus, who's just been declared by the highest court of the land to be innocent, should be treated with such contempt. But you know, people who have no reason, even to this very day. Every single day they live their lives, they eat their meals and they go to sleep but they sleep the sleep of death because their consciences are untouched and you may be one of them. There's nothing more awful in this world than to have a peaceful conscience without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're Herod. You mock the Lord Jesus with your life. You have no reason for doing so. And yet all the while, Jesus keeps calling, repent of your sin. Run to Christ. Trust in Christ. Trust that all that he has endured will be to your benefit, that you may arise from your slumber, rise up from your death, and live. You don't want to be in the company of Herod. He's wicked. He's vile. 
And he may have had his moment to mock Jesus, but it was short-lived because Herod, like you and I, will face him as judge and jury. Jesus as the king. That should make an unbelieving conscience come unnerved. And when it doesn't, those of us in Christ ought to weep. It's the greatest tragedy in life to reject and deride the sinless Savior. But it happens day by day by day. Well, in spite of the mockery and the blasphemy with Herod and his men, he saw no reason to condemn Jesus either. So he sends him back to Pilate. Luke tells us that Herod and Pilate were at odds with each other for a time, but this event, this ping-ponging of Jesus back and forth brought them together. They were made friends. It's a strange friendship, but evil, wicked men make good bedfellows with one another. Look at verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. So Jesus has been tried in a kangaroo court at Annas' house. He was sent before the high priest with Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. He was dragged before Pilate. Pilate sent him to stand before Herod. And now Herod stands him back to Pilate. And in the middle of all this political back and forth, the Jews thirsty for blood, the Romans trying their hardest to wash their hands of all of it, the people grow all the more restless. They become all the more unruly, and Pilate gets nervous. He sought to stick with strict Roman justice, but, but he doesn't think he can get away with it. I will then punish him. I'll send him back to you after I punish him. It's Pilate saying, I don't want to yield, but the pressure's too great. I want, I want to set this man free, but not at the expense of my personal life and my personal comfort and my reputation. So he tries to find a way out and sends him to Herod, but he fails. Now he seeks a way out by punishing Jesus and sending him on his way, but the people's cries prevail, and surely Pilate assumes great violence is to follow if he doesn't do what they ask. And then the people ask for Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Listen to this. They wanted Barabbas. Now remember, what are they accusing Jesus of? seeking to start an insurrection. And Luke tells us Barabbas was in prison for an insurrection. And what else? 
murder. He was a murderer. They want the insurrectionist and murderer instead of the Savior. And amidst even Pilate's pleas, their cries get louder and louder and louder. Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! Do you hear what they're saying? Beat him until he's completely unrecognizable. Put him under the weight of a cross that he has to carry up a hill. Nail spikes in his hands and feet and let him hang and suffer and die from suffocation while he bleeds and thirsts and burns while sweat rolls in to the cuts of his body. Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! It's a horrific cry. And you know what? Every time you and I knowingly sin, every time we say, I know what I'm about to do is sinful, but I'm going to do it anyway, we're there with them saying, crucify him. It hurts, doesn't it? But this is our sin, and it's spiritual insanity. It's horrendous, but this is what God thinks of our sin, and this is what our sin is requires. And it seems to Pilate like it's all getting out of control. But surely Jesus knew he was still in complete control. He knew all of this was the fulfillment of prophecy, the prophecy that all the kings of the earth would array themselves against King Jesus. Or think of that wonderful chapter in Acts chapter 8 when when Philip encounters the Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the scriptures in Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away? From the earth. And the eunuch is reading this and he turns and he asks Philip, Who is this that the prophet writes about? No doubt Philip took him right here, right to this scene, right to this moment. And so it's no coincidence that Luke continually draws attention to the fact that Jesus says nothing. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the suffering servant, despised and rejected, and while judged to be utterly innocent, he is willing to be treated as though he were guilty to fulfill all that the Father had sent him to do. And just think of someone like Barabbas. You know, it's significant that Jesus is innocent but is being tried for blasphemy and treason. These aren't Jesus' crimes. These are Barabbas' crimes. He was also a murderer, and murder is a capital crime in the Scriptures because it's an offense against the image of God, and yet Barabbas still lives. I, I wonder if Barabbas ever saw the comparison. I wonder if he ever came to know how significant this is. Brothers and sisters, friends, if Jesus isn't the absolute epicenter of everything we do, we're guilty of blasphemy. And when we deny Jesus' absolute kingship over our lives, we're guilty of treason. But this is the story of the gospel. Jesus, innocent, pure, holy, righteous, glorious. Me, guilty of blasphemy and treason against God. Jesus crucified. 
me and Barabbas and you set free. Do you understand how awful your sin is? Your blasphemy, your treason? Don't compare yourself to anybody else. Go to the cross of Jesus Christ and watch everything that takes place there over 24 hours. If this is the only thing that will take away my sin, how profound and awful my sin must be. It's awful. It's horrific. But you know something interesting about Barabbas? His, his name means son of the father, Bar Abba. Bar is son of and Abba, father. And Barabbas is the first man who was ever able to say, in my place, condemned, he stood. It's exactly what happened, isn't it? In the place of Barabbas, the blaspheming, treasonous murderer who deserved to die for his sin, Jesus took his place. Jesus is given in exchange for Barabbas. And so for the rest of his life, he could say, my name is Son of the Father. I am the Son for whom the eternal Son of the eternal Father bore my penalty. Now, now we don't know the fullness of if this is true of Barabbas or whether or not he ever repented, but the important question is whether or not it's true of you and of me. This is sad. It's, it's almost unbearable to think that our sin is the cause of all of this. But you know, Jesus did it willingly. He did it full of love for his people. He did it knowing that my sin and your sin would be what it is and that it would be again and again and again and that we would come before him day after day after day doing the same things in the same way, saying, Lord, forgive me. And we will ask, can you ever love me? Can you ever forgive me? And Jesus is saying through it all, can I? Have you seen the cross? Have you seen what I've endured? Have you heard the cries of the people for me to be crucified? I took it all for the sake of love. Yes, I love you. Yes, I have forgiven you. And you know, we, we can see that in all of life, no matter what happens, we will never experience any kind of suffering that Jesus himself did. He may not have endured the exact same abuse that we have, but he knows full well what it means to be brutally mistreated by people in the most heinous ways. You can't walk through anything in your life without Jesus looking and saying, I know what that's like. Come to me, dear child. I have been where you are, and I have won the day on your behalf. We can consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Yes, brothers and sisters, it's sad, but it's where all of our hope lies. And it should humble us to nothing so that in our nothingness we can find our all in Christ. When I survey that wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count, but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, how humbling it is that we would come
and we would consider what Christ has endured in the darkest of days upon this earth on our behalf. Father, how hard it is to accept that every blow he received, every word that was spoken in spite, every bit of spit upon his face was from us. And yet, Father, we consider that yet while we were sinners, that all of this Christ has done for us. He receives it all, and in it all, for those who trust in him, he has said, you are forgiven, you are mine, you have an eternal inheritance. And so, Father, we pray. We pray, God, that you would make known to us all the more the horrendous nature of our sin. And that as we are walking into sin, that we not dive headlong into it, but that we fight it. That we flee from it because we know, we know how horrendous our sin is and what it has cost our Savior. Father, may it be that our sin, that our sin would not continue to ensnare us. And we know that by the power of the Holy Spirit within us and by all the means of grace that you've provided, that we would walk in holiness, in obedience, in truth, for your glory and for our good. God, you have forgiven us of our sin in Christ alone who could bear the weight of it. And you have given us all that is necessary to walk in freedom from that which so easily ensnares us. And so we pray, Father, asking with hearts full of hope and joy in Christ that we would walk freely, joyfully, God, would you remind us day by day of what our sin has cost our Savior and even more so of what our Savior has accomplished for us that we might live. We are Barabbas. We have been set free. Thank you, O God, for your love and your kindness toward us for the grace and the mercy that has made us sons and daughters of God. We ask all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.